Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 441. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 441 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering and restoration engineer Anna Frick, based out of Longmont, Colorado, which is near Boulder, for those of you that are wondering. Anna has worked on a number of projects, including the rise and fall of Paramount Records, the Navajo Nation's Oral History Project, Billy Strings, Wood and Wire, and a number of other projects. We're going to talk all about her journey and have a great conversation. I really look forward to you hearing that. So Anna Frick, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about how we're spending our time when we're not working on audio. Now, this is something I've been over several times somewhere in these past 440 plus episodes. I've brought this up. I'm going to bring it up again because I think it, it really bears repeating. Once again, it's it's mere suggestion. It is not, Matt says this and, and it's the law. No, it's not like that. But this is working for me and I'm going to suggest it to you what I do like doing is sharing what's working for me. So why don't we just take it from that? I'm just going to tell you what I'm not doing in time spent versus what I am doing. Here's what I'm not doing. I'm not endlessly scrolling social media, looking for and stopping by train wreck posts. I'm not doom scrolling. I'm not sitting and watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of that stuff and obsessing on the talking heads and what they're saying. I am not scrolling through the next door. I don't know if any of you have ever been on next door before. I, maybe that's a US thing only, but God, just the, the post there alone will crack you up, irritate you. And anyways, I, I had to get off of it. It was just ridiculous. So I'm, that's what I'm not doing. What am I doing? What am I doing to spend my time? Well, other than, you know, what a lot of you are doing, which is, you know, if you have families, you're spending time with your families, I hope. That goes without saying, but I spend my time, uh, lately, my new obsession is uh, the Smartless podcast with Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, and Jason Bateman. I've been finding that tremendously inspiring. Depends on the guest, of course. I'll tell you, the John Favreau episode was just really, really inspiring, just hearing John talk about his journey. And, you know, plus it just gives me another point of view of like, oh, here's another podcast, and this is how they do it. That's been a great show. I really enjoy that. Masterclass. Love watching Masterclass. And I've talked about that before seeing how directors do things, how they talk about creativity, how they talk about making films, that, I don't know why that just gets me, just really grabs me. Uh, spending time networking and spending time taking Zoom calls with various people here and there, having coffees with various people who reach out who are in the area, uh, spending time in the community, especially with my Bay Area audio nerds group, that's been fun. Obviously, my Dolby Atmos Mixers Network, you know, talking with all the gang there and then, you know, side conversations with all the individuals in that group. So I think in short, when I'm not 
actively mixing something. I am engaging in those things. Obviously, there's reading stories. My wife is constantly, you know, hey, I sent you this New York Times story about, you know, this whatever, uh, this couple that's retired in, in Europe and or there's, you know, this story about this thing or this story, you know, she's always sending me stories. So it's really great. She's she's a great um, curator of great stories that she thinks and knows I will enjoy. So that's always enjoyable. I'm a mild reader. Now, it's funny because my wife is such an intense reader. She reads so much and it's it's impressive and it makes me feel <laughs> like, wow, you really like are reading so slow. It's just beyond ridiculous. So I kind of jump into books and will, you know, read a few chapters here and there and then put it down and pick up another book. I guess I am what you would call a little ADD when it comes to that. Very uh, hard to focus on a single book for an extended period of time. One thing I wish I could improve and hopefully will. The other thing I do is when I get stressed, I spend that time, that stress time, the way I de-stress is I watch horror movies. And I don't know why that does it for me, but that really does something to the stress. It really doesn't scare me too much, even though I do get a little jump scare here and there. But I've been watching horror movies for a long time just as, as a kid. So maybe there's some kind of, I don't know, childhood comfort there. I don't know, that sounds bizarre and a little macabre. But anyhow, those are some of the things that I do. And the reason I do those things is they inspire me. They get my brain really moving. I love hearing other people's stories and I love to get inspired by their story. And, and you've heard me use the term cherry pick a million times. I love cherry picking ideas and just also thinking of my future and my future trajectory of, you know, where am I going here? What am I doing? I contrast that to my older habits, doing all that other shit that really used to just consume my brain and my time. I like to know what's going on in the world. And, and my oldest son, he and I, uh, he has a thing for history and current affairs. So we discuss current affairs and foreign policy and uh, things that are going on in, in, in the world uh, together and take in a little news, but not to the point where we're sitting and watching the talking heads on the, on the, the major networks doing their complete, you know, uh, tailspin. We don't, we typically just don't do that. So why is it important to deal with your time in an effective manner? Well, for me, I feel that when I spend my time and encircle myself with inspirational people and things, I tend to think further ahead, I tend to think positively. And when I do all that other shit, I get negative. I go into a mental deep kind of dark hole. So I've learned to segment that stuff out. And if I need to visit it for any particular reason, if some there's some hot topic that I feel that is necessary to explore, sure, I'll go and investigate. But I don't spend my time there. Fine to stop in and visit, but I don't like staying there. I prefer to stay in the inspirational space and read, watch, listen, like take in things that I think are educating me and improving what I'm doing. And this goes back to a rant I had, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about in investing in yourself, whether it be seminars or you know online subscriptions or whatever it was I was, I was mumbling about. Uh, it ties into that so, that's it. I mean, I could go I could go round and round and round here just like those talking head people do, but at the end of the day, just think 
consciously. How are you spending your time and is it benefiting you really? That's that's the question. Are you really going to gain a lot of insight about the world by doing an hour's worth of Instagram scrolling? You might get a tenth of a percent of something and maybe you'll, you'll definitely laugh and maybe you'll run into some story that'll definitely make you want to like, you know, burn the world down. But what if you were to instead find a podcast, and I'm not just talking about mine, but, you know, other people's podcasts that inspire you, or maybe there's a, a Netflix documentary that is uh, uplifting that you want to watch. I'm not saying, you know, put your head in the sand and ignore the crap in the world, people. Don't, don't peg me there, because I'm not going there. I'm just saying, if you're spending your time doing positive, influential things, what will the cumulative outcome of that be? What will happen in five years to you if you just completely fill your world with positive intake from humans and media? That will be an interesting experiment. So think about it. All right. Well, uh, let's get on with this interview, I think. That would be a good idea. Okay, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. 
If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Anna Frick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So excited. Yeah, it was great to meet you at NAM. And as I was just saying before we started recording, I wish we had more time to talk, but it was a little nuts and doing a lot of running around. But I'm glad that you're uh, here to join us for the show. Let's just dive right in. Where did you grow up? I grew up here in Colorado in Fort Collins, about an hour north of Denver. Oh. Born and raised. One of the few natives that still lives here. Wow. Okay, so Fort Collins, home of the Blasting Room. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason. Jason Livermore. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Jason Livermore has <laughs> been on the show. You currently live in Boulder right now. Right. And your studio is in Longmont, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the name of the studio is? Ally Sound. Ally Sound. Okay. Yeah. And obviously, for the listeners, that link will be in the show notes. Love your website. The green color really brought me in. Ah, great. Thank you. Yeah, I worked with some friends who do branding, and it was a really wonderful, remarkable experience to hone in on on what I wanted, uh, wanted everything to look like and feel like. So thanks for saying that. Yeah. Well, let's come back and talk about that later as we uh, get down the path here. But yeah. So growing up, what was home life in terms of, did you have brothers or sisters? Yeah, I've got an older brother, just a year older than me. He still lives up in Fort Collins, just a few houses down from my parents. And we're all still close and hang out all the time. And it's my brother's birthday coming up this weekend. So well, happy birthday, spending brother. time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, you know, really like the most typical childhood you could possibly imagine skiing in the winters here in Colorado and sledding and in the summers hiking and camping and all that kind of thing. So a lot of outdoor stuff. Yeah. Were you in a school band at all? I was. Here's what happened. I was in junior high school band and I played the flute, which was awesome until I got braces. <laughs> and I went from second chair to eighth chair and just couldn't get back up any further than that. I have always blamed the braces for that. But it was a really, uh, it was a shot to my confidence for sure. When we went to high school, the only way to be in concert band was to do at least a semester in marching band. And I was not into those uniforms at all. So I just quit. I quit over a fashion decision. It was terrible. What, you don't like polyester? (laughs) No, and the hats? Come (laughs) on. The hats, right. Yeah. (laughs) I grew up in New Mexico, and I think that all the states in that region probably bought from the same vendor because we have like (laughs) goofy hats and ridiculous outfits. They were terrible. Yeah, no, I I quit after that. So I, I didn't play any instruments after that. I have a flute at home that occasionally I think I can play, and that just doesn't doesn't ring true yeah. <laughs> anymore. When did you start to discover audio as a thing, something you were even conscious of? I went to a concert, the Concert Hall, Lincoln Center in Fort Collins, and I remember our tickets were a few rows behind the soundboard, and I remember looking down at this massive console and all these knobs and buttons and faders and whatnot— And I thought, man, that person has so much control. 
And what a cool job that is. And then I looked over and the sound guy was playing a Game Boy. And that, I think that's when I was like, that's the job I want right there. <laughs> was that in the middle of the show playing the Game Boy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> but I think, you know, I was always making mixtapes with the cassettes and off the radio and that kind of thing. I enjoyed that a lot and just kind of trying to edit it all together. But really the first time I was really exposed to audio as kind of a career was my senior year of high school. One of my very good friends was a songwriter and she had always like played her songs for me and I would record them on like a little mini cassette player. And then I realized I was going to college and I wasn't going to be able to hear her songs. And all I had were these really crappy recordings on little mini cassettes. And so some friends of mine were in a band, a ska band, that's my era. And uh, they had just recorded an album and I asked them about it and they said, oh, our guitar teacher has a studio in his basement. And so I asked Jenny if she would record in a professional studio and, you know, what I thought was a professional studio in a home studio. And so we did that. And that was really my first exposure to the recording environment. And I sat next to the engineer and I just asked him all of the questions. I asked him what every button did, what why he was turning that knob, what is that little slidey thing and, you know, all the things. And I fell in love with it. And then kind of at the end of the project, he said, you kind of have a knack for this. And I said, yeah, I have really enjoyed this. And, you know, I'm sad that the project is over. And he said, you know, you can make a career out of this. And that was just kind of like nobody had ever presented that option to me. Then I just that that was it for me. I was I was sold. <laughs> and then it was like, how do I do that? Yeah. So I found found a way. <laughs> I want to backtrack just a little bit. And I want to hone in on the mixtape thing for a sec, mm -hmm. because that's something I did. And I know that's something other people did. And I know not everybody who does a mixtape becomes an audio person. But what do you think it is about the mixtape that attracts? It's almost like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, I, th I think it's just the ease of it. You know, cassette players, every one of them had a record button. Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, what does that do? And then you start playing around with that. And then then you start getting into like trying to time it off the radio, at least I did, you know, like, can I get it so I don't get as much intro of the song as I can without getting any of the DJ because he's annoying and then ending it before the DJ comes on or before the commercial comes on. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think it's just the ease of it. And I remember I had like one of those Fisher Price tape recorders mm -hmm. and I would just kind of go around and like record my day because why not? The record button's right there. There's things to record, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was there was also, I guess, for me, there was the perfection of getting the level like just right, like hitting the tape hot, but not so hot. Yeah. I don't think that was even a thought in my mind. Yeah. Oh, I got into it like in my uh, early 20s before I got into audio. And anyways, yeah, I digress. <laughs> so this experience for somebody to say, hey, this could be a career for you. Walking out of there that day, what did you, did you start to stew in your brain about like, wow, maybe I should be doing this? Yeah, I did. I, I remember I went home and I told my parents, I said, okay, so I thought I was going to go to school for creative writing and journalism and, you know, all the stability that comes with that. And instead, I'm going to go into the music business. And my parents said, no, thank you. No. I think they saw it as, well, if you do that, then you're definitely going to be living in our basement and we can't have that. 
So <laughs> they convinced me to study business. And, you know, I didn't know that audio programs existed. I came from a very academically focused family. Nearly everyone in my family has at least a bachelor's degree. Most people in my family have more. Both of my grandfathers were, were professors. And so I think not going to college was not an option for me. Mm-hmm. in my family. And so I didn't know that there were programs out there. And then it took me a while. I thought maybe I could parlay a business degree into something. But at the very least, it was good to know those things, I guess, uh, accounting and financing and marketing, mm-hmm. I guess. But uh, yeah, I just, I got really bored with with the business stuff. I was frustrated at the lack of passion that I saw in my classmates. And then I just started I don't know, looking around and finally found that there are actual audio production programs. And that's how I found CU Denver, which is where I ended up going to school. But I went off to University of Oregon and Gonzaga before finally landing back in Colorado. Were you always planning to return to Colorado? No, I had no idea. Well, when I was 18, I wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. I didn't think I'd ever look back. So I, I think it was it was good for me to move away from home to realize how incredible Colorado is. I certainly miss the sunshine a lot. I didn't realize how much the sunshine really affected me in a positive way. So it was it was good to leave home. Ultimately, I like I like being near my family. Mm-hmm. So it was good to go away and realize what I what I needed in my life. Yeah. Well, some people don't want to be near their families. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's that. Not me. I like being near them. Just for clarity's sake, you went to school and studied. What was your? De- what did you get your degree in? My degree is in uh, music industry studies. So it's actually a split between music business and audio engineering. Okay. What did you take away with a degree like that? A lot. You know, it, it incorporates all of the music business aspects. So copyright law, management, and artist relations, and understanding the whole business side of everything, along with the production side, everything that goes along with that. So yeah, it's a good marriage. It occupies all facets of my brain, I think. So that was really fun. So there is an audio education component to that, like a, like a recording program, right? Yeah, there's the whole audio production side. Yeah, I was taking audio production one and two and digital music techniques. And I can't remember what else I took. Certainly spent a good good bit of time in the studio and, and doing projects as well as the classroom business stuff mm. as well. How long did it take you to graduate from school? How long did you stay in school? In total, it was four and a half years. And that involved going to school for business my first year and a half taking a semester off, spending a summer studying in Italy, then also taking summer classes another summer as well. So yeah, I I thought I kind of rocked it in terms of all the disruption I threw into my life and still being able to graduate in four and a half years. I felt pretty good about that. Yeah. (laughs) Despite what my parents say. (laughs) Yeah. Plus you got to study in Italy for a bit. That sounds great. Yeah, that was fun. That was life-changing. Well, so after graduation, where do you take that? And what did you do Did you have any big plans coming out of college? Oh, gosh, I had no idea. I think that's the big downfall for recording arts programs is that you kind of get dumped out into the world without, I don't know, academia and the real world of the the music industry and the recording industry. There's a disconnect there, I think, because 
academia prepares you to go out into the world and apply for jobs and interview and hopefully get a job. And that's not the way this industry works. And me and my young brain didn't understand the power of networking and the power of building those relationships. And so I didn't know how to get my foot in the door. I certainly didn't try getting my foot in the door because I thought, oh, just apply for jobs. Well, then there were no no jobs to be found. And so I struggled for a long time trying to figure out what to do with my degree and, and where to go and what options I had. So that was that was a really hard transition. And it took me a long time to find anything, any kind of work that meant anything to me in the industry. That is such an important point that you make about academia and the real professional world. Very different places, aren't they? Yeah, they're very different. And I taught a class, I'm teaching at CU Denver now, and the class that I taught this semester was called Forging a Career in Audio Engineering. The whole idea is to kind of help bridge that gap, to get some real industry perspective and to help build networking skills and just kind of those skills of how do you be a freelancer or how do you find a job in the industry and what that looks like and all the different paths it can take. So yeah, I'm, I'm working to bridge that gap. And I think it seemed like the students really took to it this semester, but I think that was the class that I was missing in school. Yeah, because I've heard educators who I greatly respect, people I know say, you know, I've got people that are ready to work. And it's tough because like, and tell me if you agree with this, and, and I'm curious if this has been your approach, you really have to be an entrepreneur. You really have to carve your own path to make it work. You can get internships and such here and there, but... Would you agree with any of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's an industry where you have to have that go-getter approach to everything. Even if you are looking at working at in a more corporate environment, you have to have that go-getter approach and just be pre- prepared to work for yourself and advocate for yourself. And uh, that hustle is not everyone has it. It's hard to teach that. So yeah, it's it's a it's a wacky world for sure. So you you say that you're trying to make inroads with educators to A, make them aware, or B, interject a little bit of reality into some programs? Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I taught that class this semester, and a lot of it was bringing in guest speakers to kind of speak to their career paths, because every path looks so different to everyone who works in the industry, in my experience. And April Tucker wrote this really wonderful book that was published last year called Finding a Career in the Modern Audio Industry. And it's really well written. And we use that as the textbook. But yeah, getting that industry perspective and having those opportunities for students to make those connections with industry professionals, I think is huge. Mm -hmm. So you're not dumped out into the world with only your technical skills to rely on. That's just not enough. And clearly you speak from experience. So can you shed a little bit of light on post-college? Tell me about the the adventures you took, the the journey, and, and maybe some of the stumbling blocks. Oh my gosh. So I had to have an internship as part of my graduation requirements. I, I couldn't get the internship at the radio station that I wanted. And so I ended up just taking whatever I whatever job I could get to fulfill that requirement. And I ended up being at a booking agency. And so I worked at this tiny little booking agency in Boulder. And I interned with them over the summer, and then also over the fall semester. And then when I graduated, they hired me on. 
as their office manager. So I was working in a booking agency just as an office manager, getting paid under the table and just no audio involved at all, which was really, it was disheartening, but I also didn't know how to, how to, like I said, get my foot in the door. I didn't know what that looked like. And nobody had ever explained all these different paths to me. And so I worked there, I got let go from that company, and then I started working for a publicist who we had a huge fallout, which was really ugly and involved me having to call the cops on her. It was just, I. and after that and the booking agency experience, I just said, to hell with this industry. If this is what it's really like, I don't want any part of it. And I took a temp job, which turned into a full-time job just working at a firm that does corporate psychology. So huge left turn, but it paid really well. And I could pay rent and it was all above board. As I said, I was done with the industry at that point. And then I just kind of started looking around. I moved to Boulder and got a different job, also not in the industry. And I just kept my eyes open. And finally, I saw a job posting for a position in a studio called Sounds True, which is actually an audiobook publishing company. I got that job and the idea was to, I was the studio assistant and the idea was to eventually move me into a full engineer position there. So that I was able to get back into audio that way. And it was editing audiobooks and editing a lot of room tone, so much room tone in meditation <laughs> practices. <laughs> got really good at that. But it got me back to audio. And that that I loved. I absolutely loved. And then I my boyfriend at the time, now husband, he also worked in the industry. We met at the booking agency. And through his contacts, I met Dave and Ann from Airshow. And one day they, they reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking for an assistant engineer if you know of anyone. And they kind of said, you know, we think this is probably below where you're at in your career. But if you think of anyone, let us know. And I said, no, I'm interested. Please, please consider me. And I threw my hat in the ring. So I got back into music production that way. Wow. What I'm impressed by is your, your willingness to stick it out and to continue to seek audio and find a spot. Like clearly, in spite of your frustration, you maintain this desire to get to audio. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, just keep an open mind. And I wanted to work in music and I ended up working in audiobooks. That's very, very different, but there's are a lot of core principles there. And that paved the way for me to have enough experience to apply for the job at Airshow. So one thing always leads to another. So I think keeping an open mind is huge and always being able to see opportunities for what they are. When I left Sounds True and moved over to Airshow, the position at Airshow was part-time. And so I was leaving this full-time salaried position with benefits for a part-time job. It was a huge leap of faith, but I was willing to, and I was, like you said, I was committed to it. So, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So your shift to work with Airshow, would you say that that was a major turning point? It was huge. Yeah. It was like right during the big housing crash. And so it was like, am I really going to leave my full-time job for a part-time job that I don't know what it's going to look like? And yeah, I, I remember like really, really considering that pretty heavily. And ultimately it was like, I just have to take the leap. I have to go for it. 
And so, yeah, it, it certainly marked a shift for me back into music. And not only that, like right into the deep end of, of audio. So yeah, it was a huge turning point. The trajectory I had at, at Sounds True was kind of putting me in more managerial roles. And I, I decided like, you know what, this is fine. I, I will move on up this ladder in this company and it'll be great. And then this other opportunity came to refocus back to music production. And yeah, it was a, it was the Saturn return, as they say, because it was right in my late 20s that that happened. What would you say to somebody in a similar position? Because it's very easy to just say, well, I got this thing and it's not what I want to be doing ultimately, but it's kind of a sure thing in your mind. And taking that leap to say, okay, I may take a cut here in salary and my position, but I'm going to go anyway. Would you have advice for somebody in that position? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I would say if if there's a chance that the opportunity is aligned with what your passion is, like take the leap, just do it. You know, also always have a fallback plan, always be saving money, be responsible in that regard, mm -hmm. have a savings plan. But yeah, take the leap. And at the very least, you'll you'll learn either that it's not for you or you won't have those regrets. It's never a bad thing to just jump in with both feet and try something out. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I usually talk about this part of an audio professional's life later on in the interview, but since you bring it up, the, the money thing, mm -hmm. at that point in your life, did you have a strong sense of financial responsibility? And if so, where did that come from? You know, I think ultimately it's uh, my parents make terrible roommates and I never want to live in their basement. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think my parents certainly... My dad is a long-term planner. He's a civil engineer, so he's all about planning and executing and having that 
that look many, many miles down the road. So I observed that growing up, and I observed my parents when I was born. They they had one car between the two of them. They both were working parents, and my dad would ride his bike to work to save money. And, and ultimately, it led to them being able to afford to build their own house. And my dad helped design that house. So there, it's certainly ingrained in me to squirrel away money and just always be looking 10 years down the road of like, what do I need to do to set myself up for the next step? I also say will say that I have that mentality and I'm not always great at adhering to that. So <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, I'm I'm definitely better at it now, but it's always a work in progress. And sometimes you may take a left turn in that area. But anyways, let's get back to the journey itself. So now a new chapter begins. You're you're with Airshow and Tell me about that process and what you learned. What were the takeaways from those early times there? And was it any kind of a shock to you to go into that world? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest shock was just learning my place on on the ladder, which was on the lowest rung, and needing to work my way up and earn every inch that I could get. But also, you know, in terms of technical skills, it was critical listening as the assistant engineer, it was my job to quality check everything. And so I was, there was a huge responsibility on my shoulders to ensure the technical perfection because my ears were the last on a master before it went out the door. And the weight of that was not lost on me. And so I was meticulous to begin with, but that just amplified it times a thousand because I, I didn't want to be the one who messed up or where there was an error that got made into thousands of records, uh, thousands of CDs or whatever. Like, I didn't want that to be on my shoulder. So, you know, it was probably mostly fear-based, <laughs> fear-based lessons. But also a lot of the takeaways were just in procedures and developing workflows and also developing how to work with clients and how to understand what they need and what they want. So yeah, those are the biggest takeaways. And what about moving up the ladder there? How did that work? You know, it comes back to that go-getter attitude. I certainly recognized that I was in this world-class facility with this world-class gear and these world-class engineers. And I realized I would be an absolute idiot to not take full advantage of that. And so I started just asking a zillion questions, just like I did in high school. Sitting next to the engineer, I just asked all the questions and I started trying to understand their workflows, partly to be a better assistant to the engineers of like, okay, how do I recall a project on your system? You know, and can you trust me to recall and make changes if they're minor or something? But it also allowed me the opportunity to really understand every piece of gear in there. So I would spend my evenings coming in or, you know, staying after everyone else and with the engineer's permission, playing around with the gear, like really understanding the flavors of everything. And also like I would sit there and I would listen to the mix and then I would listen to the master. And then I would look at the engineer's recall notes and I would say, well, why did they, why did they make that move? And then I would try to hear it, the reasoning behind why they made that EQ move or whatever. And then I started going through every piece of gear, just like click by click, just like A being to see what exactly everything was doing and just a 
ton of ABing. <laughs> like I would just hone in on literally every notch of every dial on every piece of gear. And then I started trying to not look at the engineer's recall notes to get from mix to where they got with a master and see if I could figure that out on my own, like how they got there. Mm -hmm. And then I started mastering myself. You know, I would take something that was already mastered and go back to the mix and do my own interpretation and then ask for the engineer's feedback on it. So it was just like, you know, it was me just taking the time off company time to learn everything and learn what mastering was all about. I wanted to ask you, in that time period of testing and A-being and such, do you feel that your brain and your ears went through a shift where it's almost like exercising, like you exercise your hearing a bit like that to try to understand things. Did you find that your hearing became more acute? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard when you're A-being and you know what move was made because you know it's happening, so you think you think you hear it. So trying to trick my brain into what I was I listening to the A or to the B and actually being able to hear it as opposed to seeing me switch from A to B. And uh, I'll, I'll still do that. I'll kind of close my eyes and click the bypass really, really quickly to see if I can hear something. But uh, yeah, I, I think quality checking all those masters, I started to understand what I liked about the records, like what made them feel done, made them feel ready for the marketplace. And then going back to the mixes, it was like I started to recognize what polish is is needed to make something feel done or what is a great mix and all that kind of thing. It certainly it started in the QC process, just sitting there with headphones every single day, sometimes for eight to 10 hours a day with headphones on and listening for everything and then just understanding what what moves you as a music lover as you're listening, in addition to what makes it feel done. Yeah, it's interesting when you've been working on something for a long time and then it comes time for the QC, whether it's a mix or a master, and sending stuff out. I'll confess that in the past, I've had great impatience with it. And to sit and critically listen to what you've done. In fact, I, I had to do it today. I had to send out a whole record's worth of ADM files for an Atmos mix that I did. I don't know why, but I've shed that impatience over time. And I'm wondering, have you ever encountered that? Is that something that ever affected you where you're just like, oh my God, hurry up, let's get this done? <laughs> no, and I'll tell you why. It's because in QC, there's when you're mastering or when you're mixing, you're involved in all these details, these very technical details. And it's it's really hard, at least for me, it's really hard to kind of sit back and enjoy the music to a certain a certain extent. And in the QC process, it's like I finally get to put my music lover hat on for a second. And that's when all of a sudden the lyrics start resonating with me. And that's when I kind of go like, oh man, this sounds great. And this music is great. And these songs are great. And these mixes are great. And I, I start to fall in love with the record in the QC process in a, in a totally different way than I did in the mastering process. And then, you know, obviously it's like those things that poke out to you, the clicks and pops or distortions, like those are distractions and you deal with those as a matter of, of course in the, in the QC, but the QC process is, I love it. It's when I get to actually enjoy it. Yeah. I'm fine with it now, but in the past, in my twenties, I was just always like, 
oh my God, I've heard this song a million times. I just want to send it to them. I just want want them to right. hear it. But yeah, now it's nice to sit back. And I find that when I do that, the real problems stick out. In fact, it happened today. I was listening and it's like, oh crap, that guitar solo is way too low. Let's listen to the stereo version. Okay, yeah. Then yeah. you got to recall. Well, anyway, so that that's fascinating. Just the the growth of your hearing over that time period. What are some other things that you learned at Air Show? Yeah, I mean, I went to school during an era where we were still recording to twenty four track tape and and mixing down to quarter inch, and you don't get that much access to that kind of stuff these days. So I really started learning more about archival work and doing a lot of archival work because I'm meticulous about databases. I I freaking love databases and just like file management and that kind of thing. I started being the person at the company to manage these really large transfer and restoration projects. And in doing that, I had these engineers who knew more about the formats than I did. And so I was managing the organization of the project. And then they were teaching me so much on the technical aspects and enhancing all my skills in that arena. So that really was a huge growth for me. Yeah, I think I I fell in love with audio restoration and transfer work. I, I fell in love with it there in a way that I hadn't been exposed to because, you know, in college, it was all, all about recording to and mixing down on tape, but not dealing with these more obscure formats and and having to deal with them in a way that's like, this was recorded in God knows what way and in a different era. And now we're trying to do all this detective work to try to piece it back together. Yeah. Wow. We could probably do a whole, whole other full show just on restoration alone. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so how long did you stay at Air Show? I was there for 12 years. Wow. Which is a long time at a studio. Yeah. And in that 12 years, about six years in, Dave decided to downsize the studio. And so it became just me and him. And that was a huge shift and a huge boon to my career because suddenly I wasn't having to fight other engineers for work. And it also just upped my my profile as well. So yeah, that kind of kicked everything into high gear when that happened. That's amazing. That must be a great ego boost to survive the cut and just have it be you and and one of the main founders of the company. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think what kind of set me apart from everyone else was aside from still taking on all the assistant engineer duties at that point and taking on my own mastering clients and that kind of thing. But it was, you know, my ability to manage these large projects, which, you know, are quite lucrative or can be, and my ability to manage that in a way that nobody else could. And also just like my contributions to the infrastructure for the for the company, I, I rebuilt our entire um, CRM and was responsible for customizations to that as we developed our workflows in different ways. And then just my adherence to file management and backup systems and that kind of thing. I think it was, yes, my engineering skills were one thing, but that was a whole nother part of what made me make the cut. Let's get a little extra nerdy here for a second. What CRM system were you using? We were doing everything in FileMaker, and I still use FileMaker. And we were using Studio Suite. I don't know if you remember that. Did you ever use that one? No, no. But I have a vague memory of that name. 
Yeah, it was a solution that you would purchase, and it was built specifically for recording studios, and there was so much to it, but it was completely locked down, so we couldn't customize it. There was way more than a mastering studio ever needed. Ultimately, it's client information, project information, and then calendar information, and those are the three kind of modules but it had Studio Suite had so much more than we ever needed. And so we were having to just kind of work around all these extra things in there. And I had been working in FileMaker and all the companies that I had worked at previously, they all used FileMaker. And so I had gotten good at scrapping together and writing databases and or like writing solutions in FileMaker. And so I looked at that and I said, we can do better and I can do better for us. That is a system that is more malleable and more customizable and is more suited to our specific needs. Did you do that? Did you just say, hey, we're going to do this or we should do this? Or did somebody say, could you do this? I think I kind of pushed for it quite a bit. I think I said, you know, if this was not a lockdown solution, I could do this. And I think I was a squeaky wheel about it. And eventually they kind of gave me the reins to do some research. And and ultimately what I did was we purchased a solution that was open enough and had enough of what we needed that I could then customize the hell out of it specifically for us. And so that's what I ultimately they they said, okay, research it, tell us what it's going to cost tell us how much time of yours it's going to cost. And I came back and I said, this is what it's going to cost. It'll take me two months or three months of heads down development time to get it off the ground. And they said, go for it. Damn, that's great. What a way to differentiate yourself. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to the advice for how to get ahead, you know, it's, yeah, making yourself just that much more appealing to an employer is is huge. Absolutely. Well, so after 12 years, obviously you left. And was that the start of of your own company? Yeah, I left Airshow on a Friday and I was up and running in my studio by the next week. (laughs) Wow. So had you been accumulating gear during that time period? No, no, I hadn't. I hadn't really... (laughs) I didn't really have the capital or like I didn't really have a full exit plan when I left in terms of gear. I was more concerned with having a space to work out of and kind of being set up in that sense. And I knew that the gear would flow as needed. I had the basic stuff. I had a DAW. I still was trying to figure out speaker systems, but we had made the capital available to purchase whatever I needed. And I had done a lot of research. So the second I left, I could just start saying, okay, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. And just going out and purchasing. Mm. But I hadn't been collecting gear up until then. I had just been doing all the research on what I wanted. Are you still in the same space that you started in after Airshow? Yeah, I am. So what happened was I reached out to my friend Mark Venezia, who owns Wind Over the Earth. I don't know if you are familiar with the company. They used to be next door to Airshow back before Dave downsized the studio. And Mark had built a new space the same time that Airshow left the building. He also left the building and had bought a building here in Longmont and built a recording studio in it. So I had reached out to him because Wind Over the Earth is primarily a gear dealer. And so I had reached out to him and said, hey, I'm going to need to purchase a bunch of gear. 
And so I met him and I, we were talking about it and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm still looking for a space. If you happen to know of anyone, actually our, our friend Jason McDaniel actually said, you should talk to Mark. And Mark said, you know, I actually was thinking about leaving this space because it's just not being used as much as I would like. But what if we share the space and you can have it Monday through Friday and I'll take it on the weekends and we can share it and we can try that out for six months and see how it goes. So I said, absolutely, let's do that. And then after six months, we said, hey, this is working out pretty nicely for both of us. Why don't we keep this going? And we kept it going. Yeah, so now we've we've been here sharing the space for a little over a year now, and it's it's been a really fantastic partnership. So wow. in addition to being able to use all of Mark's gear, he's also been able to get me a whole bunch of gear, and the space is working out really well. We're making improvements as needed, and uh, we just rebuilt all the patch bays to make our workflows dovetail a little bit better. But yeah, it's it's been a great situation. Well, that's that's an amazing opportunity that you have there with that space. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous space. The live room is beautiful, and Mark has so much vintage gear, and it's been fantastic. <laughs> and he's 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 just been really fun to work with too. I like giving him a hard time all the time. So I said I would come back to this website and this hiring a branding firm. Tell me about your approach to this, to the business end of it, and specifically highlighting hiring this branding firm? You know, ultimately what it came down to is the branding firm came from, they're really good friends of mine and they do this as, as a side hustle to their day jobs. It's Alana and Jerron Jackson out of Nashville and Jerron is working for Nike now doing branding. So he certainly has some chops and Alana is a fantastic copywriter. And Alana, I know through Planet Bluegrass, she used to work with my husband there many years ago. And Planet Bluegrass has, had gone through a branding experience and she had told me how wonderful that experience was. And then she and I got to talking about it. And so I, I decided to hire them. And I, I knew that working with someone who knows so much about this kind of thing and knowing working with people that know me really well, I, I knew it was going to be a great partnership. Ultimately, what it comes down to is I was leaving this really incredible studio and I wanted to maintain that the professional status. I wanted to maintain that standard of quality that I had been known for at Airshow and that Airshow had been known for. And I wanted to not have any dip in that quality. And I think part of that is how you present yourself out to the world. You know, in addition to having the gear and having the space and having the ears, like how do you convey that out to the world? Hmm. Well, like I said, the website looks great. I went to it and immediately just, you get a great vibe. You think, okay, this is pro. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing is that was really important to me was conveying my values. I think that the thing that I really wanted to do that I really love about having my own studio now is being able to operate the business in accordance with my own values. And I wanted to make sure that my my website reflects that. And so that branding experience was, it was also helping me to hone in on how I want my company to run, what I want it to look like, what I want it to feel like, and how clients can expect to be treated. And so it it was, yes, I got this really slick website out of the deal, but it also helped me center myself and my core values and, and set an intention for my studio and for the work that I want to do. 
I want to dissect that a little bit. That's that's really great what you just said. Some people would just look at it as a website, but at the at the core of it, it's really it's a mission statement in itself. And it and as you said, it helps to center you because you commit to this visual and the verbiage on the website. And it kind of makes you go, oh, okay. You solidify that. You say, this is this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Mm-hmm. And everything else follows that. Everything that you do from how you conduct business to how you treat your clients, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I think those guiding principles are essential, especially we just went through my entire background and getting burned so many times and, and being in some pretty shitty situations, I think, has really given me a lot of perspective. And now that I'm here on my own terms, it's important for me to live the way I want and work the way I want and to treat people the way I wish I would have been treated, you know, when I was coming up in the industry. So I think it's, it's really important for me. Yeah. Really great information there. Yeah. So the website is allysound.com. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that and any other links that you have that I think would be important to people like, you know, social media handles, et cetera, in case people want to get in touch and hire you to master their record or do a restoration project for them. Yeah. Thank you. Well, this has been great. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, I know we'll we'll have further conversations in the future at trade shows, et cetera. So yeah. great to sit and chat. And I appreciate your time here today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. And I've been a huge fan of the podcast for a long time. So this has been a, a joy to talk to you. All right, Anna. Well, thank you so much. And uh, you take care. All right. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Anna Frick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, my ask is that you stop on by your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review. If you like what's going on here and you like listening to these conversations, it really helps out the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow and the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song. And you know who he is, the one, the only, Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. 
many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 